listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, I want to thank all of you out there. Your support has kept us going. If you would like to help us continue to grow, please tell a friend or family member about us. Heck, rip their phone out of their hand and subscribe them to our podcast. (laughs) No, seriously. Another great way to support us is to help us with our costs. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a Patreon member. Head on over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ohio Mysteries to learn how. When you donate, it will open you up to our extra content. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a brand new Ohio Mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and researcher who is an award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Steve, did you know that a former vice president of the United States once faced charges for attempting to take over part of the country? Wait, wait, what? Uh, Did I know this? Well, what if I told you that the center of his operation was on an island in the Ohio River and that the boats for his army were constructed in Marietta? Okay, Blennerhassett Island, that's in the Ohio River. That's coming to mind. But I seem to recall some kind of treason being plotted from the Blennerhassett Island. I did not know about the Marietta Navy, though. Actually, I don't recall really that many details. Well, then you're in luck, because tonight we are indeed talking about Blennerhassett Island. And the man at the center of our story is... I know this one. I know this one. Aaron Burr. (laughs) Right. Good job. Aaron Burr, our third vice president under Thomas Jefferson. Burr, of course, is famously known as the man who shot and killed Alexander Hamilton during a duel. But if what you know about Burr is limited to the Broadway show Hamilton, then you may not know what happened to him after that deadly gunfight in 1804. Because three years later, Burr was arrested and charged with treason. Isn't Blennerhassett Island technically West Virginia? Yes. Actually, at the time of our story, it was Virginia, but it did become West Virginia when the state split during the Civil War. The thing is, Burr tried to recruit his supporters in all the Ohio River towns from Marietta to Cincinnati. And when President Jefferson decided it was time to stop him, Ohio became ground zero in the story of Burr's conspiracy. was an attorney from New Jersey who distinguished himself as a colonel during the Revolutionary War and went on to become a prominent politician. There was much to be admired as this brilliant man rose to the second highest office in the land. But in 1804, his feud with Alexander Hamilton, one of the country's founding fathers, led to a duel in which Hamilton was killed and Burr's political aspirations destroyed. 
He may have killed one enemy, but he had created thousands of others. Though he would not face charges for killing Hamilton, he was done in Washington. So when he left the nation's capital at the end of his term, he looked at the wide open West and saw a new frontier ripe for the taking. What makes this story a mystery is we're still not exactly sure what Burr all had planned. He'll deny it all at his trial. But from testimony and letters, it certainly appears his end goal was to wrench away some of America's western territories and start a new republic. We also know he wanted to enlist England's help to do it. England, the country that we just fought to win our independence. To kick things off, Burr met in secret with England's ambassador, Anthony Mary, and suggested they work together to challenge the United States' westward expansion. After planting that little seed in America's mortal enemy, Burr embarked on a tour of the West. In that day, the West was anything this side of Pennsylvania. This tour was open and public. Newspapers covered his comings and goings as they would any dignitary. If a former vice president came to your hometown, you rolled out the red carpet. But Burr's true intent on this circuit was to take the temperature of leaders and influential people in Ohio and beyond. If he was going to establish a new country, he'd need an army and supporters willing to command them and fund them. And so, in the spring of 1805, Burr set sail down the Ohio River. He left Pittsburgh on April the 30th with his assistant, Gabriel Shaw, in a specially built 60-foot-long houseboat. Five days later, they reached Marietta. Burr wrote this in his journal. On the morning of the 5th, reached Marietta, containing about 80 houses, some that would be called handsome in any village on the continent. After breakfast came in several gentlemen of the town to offer me civilities and hospitalities. We have been walking several miles to see the mounds, parapets, squares, and other remains of unknown antiquity which are found in this neighborhood. I am astonished and confounded. In Marietta, Burr was also introduced to Harmon Blennerhassett, a very wealthy English immigrant. Blennerhassett and his wife Margaret bought the east end of an island in the Ohio River about a decade earlier. They moved there because, before becoming husband and wife, they were uncle and niece, and the frontier offered them some distance from those who knew of their incestuous scandal. Burr followed Blennerhassett to his island estate, had a nice visit, then left a couple of days later to continue his western tour. But he knew he'd be back. He had found someone he was confident would be a valuable partner in the days to come. Burr continued to Cincinnati, where he met with Senator John Smith and former Senator Jonathan Dayton. Now, in these conversations with people, Burr was always intentionally vague, 
just hinting at some kind of project in the West that would offer opportunities for fame and glory. He was really just trying to sum people up, separating who might be friend from who might be foe. But eventually, tongues started wagging. What in the heck was Burr up to? Conversations spread. Rumors grew. By the time Burr reached New Orleans and began meeting with Mexican associations, his grand vision started taking on a bit of a sinister appearance to some. Now, I won't pretend to understand how this was supposed to work, but... I think the idea was Mexico wanted independence from Spain. And if Mexico were willing to go to war with Spain, then the United States would have to rush to the Southwest to defend its territories along that border. Since relations there were really strained between the U.S. and Spain, it could cause a huge mess. And somehow, somewhere in all of that chaos... Burr and his supporters would be able to carve away enough land for his dynasty. This chatter continued as Burr left New Orleans and made his return trip east. In October of 1805, he reappeared in Marietta. This time, he met with a territorial judge named Return Jonathan Miggs and a former general, Edward Tupper. Tupper seemed eager to have an army to command again and asked Burr if he could have a position in his army if war with Spain happened. Burr said yes and encouraged Tupper to recruit others to their cause. Burr even sent Tupper a book, The Duty of a Soldier and Discipline of the Infantry, and told him to use it to prepare as well as recruit more men from Southeast Ohio. Burr also reached out to his new acquaintance, Harmon Blennerhassett. Whatever they discussed on that first visit must have encouraged Burr to feel free to open up because he wrote him and promised him more wealth and prominence if he would join Burr in his cause. Blennerhassett couldn't accept fast enough. He wrote back, I should be honored in being associated with you in any contemplation you would permit me to participate in. Now, Blennerhassett had no business, military, or political experience. What he had was money, vast financial resources, and valuable connections in Marietta. He also proved to be putty in Burr's hands. Blennerhassett's contemporaries described him as being gullible and easily manipulated. Blennerhassett also had a personal reason for wanting to latch on to this idea of a new country in the West. People had begun to learn about his shameful marriage to his niece, and the same pressures that had forced him out of England to an island in the Ohio River were driving him to move again.
Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements. And I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. The next spring, Burr returned to the island, where he and Blennerhassett worked out the logistics for an expeditionary force that would invade Mexico and set off the dominoes for Burr's plan. Blennerhassett ordered 15 gunboats to be built. Construction began on the Muskingum River, about seven miles up from Marietta, on the farm of Colonel Joseph Barker. And in Marietta, Burr was offering to lead the local militia in some drills. It was a friendly offer. I mean, if a former vice president and a Revolutionary War colonel wants to lead your troops in an exercise, you'd be flattered. But he used this time to try and sign up recruits for his vague but glorious enterprise promising signees they would each be granted a hundred acres of land in Louisiana when all was said and done. Meanwhile, back on the island, food provisions and weapons were being gathered. And Glennerhassett, for his part, was doing what he could to broaden support. Anonymously, he began writing a series of articles for the Ohio Gazette in which he explained the advantages of Western states separating themselves from the Union. Burr also started becoming a little clearer about his intentions. The Blennerhassets held a ball in his honor, and Burr moved through Marietta's high society, charming everyone with his personal magnetism while insinuating how everyone would probably be better off if the West seceded from the States. At least one person at the ball challenged him. Reportedly, Burr was dancing with a woman named Miss Chambers, and as he answered her questions about his goals, she suddenly broke from the dance, drew herself to her full height, and firmly stated, I do not dance with traitors. Undeterred, Burr was moving ahead with his plans. But in truth, they were crumbling. Neither England nor Spain were taking the bait. And Miss Chambers wasn't the only one who saw Burr's plans as being treasonous. In his attempt to lure disgruntled military officers and who he thought were like-minded politicians to his cause, 
he encountered people who were really appalled that a man who was once a heartbeat away from the presidency was now plotting against his country. One man wrote President Jefferson to say Burr had told him it was his intent to eventually take over the U.S. government. The man warned Jefferson Colonel Burr should be removed from the country. Another man, Colonel George Morgan in Pennsylvania, listened as Burr shared his goals with him, thinking he had found a new ally. But after Burr left, Morgan quickly wrote Jefferson and detailed the plot. Even other residents of Wood County, Virginia, that's the county to which Blennerhassett Island belonged, were getting very concerned about what was going on on that island. They figured they'd better take a stance. On October the 6th, 1806, they held a community meeting, declared their loyalty to the U.S., and mustered a militia in case they needed it to fend off whatever was coming. inroads with at least one very important person, no less than the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army, General James Wilkinson. They had been communicating since the start, before Burr even began his trip out west. Burr was so confident in Wilkinson's support that in July of 1806, he sent the general a coded message that said, I have commenced the enterprise. Detachments from different points and under different pretenses will rendezvous on the Ohio River on November the 1st. Burr was simply waiting for those boats to be finished. He expected they would set off in early December and pick up recruits that he was confident were waiting for him along the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. What he didn't know was that General Wilkinson finally broke. He turned against Burr and shared that coded message with President Jefferson. Jefferson was not surprised by any of this. He'd been warned several times over the last year and a half about Burr, yet seemed strangely reluctant to take any action. But what the heck? Burr is ready to launch some kind of fleet from the Ohio River? Well, maybe it was more of a serious endeavor than Jefferson had given it credit for. Jefferson sent John Graham, the territorial governor of the Orleans Territory, to investigate. Burr was away in New Orleans when Graham traveled to Marietta. Graham introduced himself to Blennerhassett, presented himself as an associate of Burr's, and Blennerhassett freely talked about everything. With that evidence, Jefferson now issued a proclamation warning the country of an unlawful enterprise in the West, and he ordered civil and military authorities everywhere to arrest the participants. So, Ohio's legislature took action. They ordered the seizure of the gunboats being made near Marietta, set militia troops along the Ohio River, 
and even put a cannon on the shore for good measure. Burr's young, ambitious recruits in Marietta did try to get those boats back. One story tells of a tussle they had with Clark Green, a half-blind riverman, and his two sons, aged 11 and 12, who were guarding three of the boats. Burr's agents got away with one boat after that fist fight, but apparently the Green family held on to the other two. There were also tales of how Burr's men set off explosions, trying to distract Ohio's disorganized militia, who had grown bored on their assignment and were entertaining themselves by passing around the whiskey. It was a farcical night that led General Edward Tupper to write a satirical poem he called The Battle of the Muskingum. But Burr's people still only managed to reclaim a couple of boats, which they floated to Blennerhassett Island. Blennerhassett himself figured he was immune from whatever was going on in Marietta, That was Ohio. His island was technically in Virginia. But Virginia was also heeding Jefferson's call to action. On December the 10th, Blennerhassett learned Virginia soldiers were planning to arrive on the island the next day and capture any people or supplies involved with Burr's mission. So shortly after midnight, Blennerhassett and a dozen men in four boats left the island under cover of darkness. The Virginia militia arrived the next day to find they were gone. With Blennerhassett and Burr, now fugitives, people weren't sure what was going to happen next. There were newspaper reports that suggested Burr might have an army of 20,000 men at his disposal. There's even a story about how Cincinnati panicked when some folks saw three anchored boats on the river and suspected they belonged to Burr's men who were escaping from Blennerhassett Island. When a prankster set off a bomb that night, they were sure the city was under siege, and Cincinnati's militia rushed to defend the shoreline. When the sun rose, embarrassed officials learned the boats were simply merchant vessels. Nobody was attacking anybody. Here's the funny thing about this whole story. History has a way of putting together all the pieces of the puzzle that nobody could see in its entirety when it was happening. In truth, Burr never had more than a few dozen ragtag converts. When Burr and Blennerhassett finally rejoined each other, they took inventory. Nine boats, 60 men. That was it. A month later, they were both in custody and charged with treason. Burr's trial was held in the fall of 1807. A jury acquitted him. He had been so vague in his conversations with people, there was not a really comprehensive, cohesive understanding of exactly what the heck he intended to do. And the Constitution described treason as an overt act of war. There hadn't even been a weapon fired. 
After Burr was acquitted, Blennerhassett, who had been imprisoned waiting his own trial, was also released. Burr later admitted it was his intent to go to Mexico, create a new empire there, and become its ruler. He would be called Emperor Aaron I. Blennerhassett would be his ambassador to England. But he insisted he had never sought to break up the United States. Burr lived a long life, eventually retiring to New York and securing a small law practice. And that's where he was in 1836 when a small army in Texas defeated Santa Ana and declared their independence from Mexico. When Burr heard the news of this famous battle, he reminded people he had only ever been trying to take over part of Mexico, just as the Texans did. He exclaimed, I was 30 years too soon. What was treason 30 years ago is patriotism now. I want to give credit for much research in this story to MarietaOhio.org. That's a website of the town's Convention and Visitors Bureau. And a 1966 book called Blennerhassett Island and the Burr Conspiracy by Nora Schneider. Both are available on the internet and are rich in colorful detail if you want to learn more about this crazy moment in history. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com, and we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.